Hey there, welcome to Shoot the Flick. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. And we are a married couple who like to shoot the shit about movies. That we do, that we do. And this week starts a wonderful, magical, amazing, testicle time. For it is my little takeover month of me introducing Scott to movies that are also based on books. Because, like I mentioned last week, there are film adaptations of literature that are actually good. And one of them (laughs) took place in the year 1972. Scott, what movie did I introduce you to today? You introduced me to The Poseidon Adventure. Ooh, sounds adventurous. (laughs) (laughs) This film was based on the 1969 novel by a Mr. Paul Gallico. This film, The Poseidon Adventure, is one of the many, 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 many films that took place in the 70s disaster movie phase. The craze, the fad, you know. That still goes on to this day. Well, it kind of had a resurgence in the 90s and then fell away for a while and then kind of had a resurgence like in the 2000s. Tens, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you still have Roland Emmerich who still comes out with one every couple of years. I mean, he's hanging in there. But basically, this 70s disaster movie craze involved movies with big budgets, big disasters, both natural and man-made. They had ensemble casts, a big old spectacle, and there was... A, a 90s revival with movies such as Titanic, Independence Day, and Armageddon. And then you have movies like Day After Tomorrow, San Andreas, 2012, you know. When, the, when we all thought we would die in 2012. That was fun. Remember those times? Those, those were good times. But anywho, Scott, just general idea of how you felt about this movie. Um, it's good. It's a good movie. There's a lot going on. Sometimes some of the characters are a little annoying. Mainly one that we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah, there's another. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think with any disaster movie or any any movie that kind of has like a big crisis where, you know, multiple people have to survive, there's always like that one or two that you were like characters that are just a liability that you're like i can't wait till you die yeah but then they just they happen to live and you're like how did that even happen so the poseidon adventure was a huge movie when it came out it was actually the second highest grossing film of 1972 behind the godfather yeah so i mean there you go it had a 4.7 million dollar budget and made a whopping 125 million dollars and in 1972 that's nothing to sneeze at exactly um i remember watching this growing up this was one of like the quote-unquote grown-up movies my parents introduced me to as a kid i hadn't seen it in literally years like i was i, I was very into the movie watching it again i got all the nostalgia feels but there's one scene in particular more towards the end of the movie that uh, always stuck out to me as a kid and throughout my my many years. But um, we're going to talk about all of that. But generally, I had a great experience rewatching this. This film was directed by a man named Ronald Neem. And it was written by two gentlemen, one by the name of Sterling Siliphant, who won an Oscar for writing uh, In the Heat of the Night. Good movie. Great fucking movie. 
But there, there are other movies that were in the 70s disaster craze that like they recycled uh, a lot of the same people that worked on them, including the writers. This gentleman, Sterling Siliphant, also wrote a movie called Towering Inferno, which starred Paul Newman, which is another one that I've actually seen. It's really good. Um, but it's basically like it's even longer than this. This movie was two hours. I think Towering Inferno was like three hours. That's one thing about this movie that going in knowing it's a 70s movie. You run that risk of these movies that are considered classics being very slow and being very drawn out and being very boring. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that way with this movie. The movie oh. moved at a nice clip yeah, definitely. throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was actually very pleasantly surprised by how well it was paced. Yeah. I think another thing you were surprised by is how many big names were in this movie, which was kind of another aspect of the 70s disaster movie they just shoved a lot of big names in this ensemble cast gene hackman was like the really big name i think in this movie then we have jack albertson uh ernest borgnine ernest borgnheim yes there's a lot of people but i mean in the other movies like towering inferno had paul newman they had one called earthquake with charlton heston they had a movie called the swarm which was i believe if i'm not mistaken just like Crazy bee attacks. I think so. I think you're right. With Michael Caine. Not the bees! Ah! Out of my eyes! My eyes! Ah! The other gentleman that wrote this movie was named Wendell Mays, and he was also Oscar nominated for writing Anatomy of a Murder, which was another great movie. So we got some really talented people behind this flick, one of which also, haha, being the composer which is the great john williams yeah john williams honestly he can put out a great piece of music no matter what oh yeah decade. i mean there's a lot of great music in this movie and he also did the score for towering inferno as well so he was also kind of recycled just for his epicness i think because at this did he do star wars yet when did star wars come out 1977 okay so this was before star wars yes that's crazy <laughs> and uh i think poseidon adventure also did have a remake in like 06 with Kurt Russell. I never saw it though, but I heard it was bad. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's the sequel, which I didn't read much into the plot of the sequel. Big but, flop though. <laughs> yeah, big flop with Michael Caine. Yeah. And then there was a 2006 theatrical remake. When you hear like, oh, there's going to be a sequel to this movie. If you've seen the movie, you're like, what the hell are you going to do for a goddamn sequel? I mean, clearly it's, it's. I would assume, again, haven't read the plot of it, but I would assume it's just a bunch of other random people on a boat and there's like a problem, you know? Because that's basically what this disaster movie is. There's There are a bunch of people on a boat and the boat doesn't hit an iceberg. The, the boat capsizes due to a tsunami. Unlike Titanic, which went on its first voyage and hit an iceberg, this boat was on its last voyage because it's an old creaky bitch and <laughs> she hit a tsunami yeah that's the plot of this one i just read the plot of the s- sequel and it's taking place at the same time as this one technically two rival pirate crews break onto the poseidon adventure while this movie's technically happening while it's capsized while it's capsized to try and steal gold that is on the poseidon what? Wait, let me I'll, read I'll, that. I'll, read the whole plot. I want to read the synopsis. After the Poseidon adventure in which the ship got flipped over by a tidal wave, the ship drips bottom up in the sea. While the passengers are still on board waiting to be rescued, two rivaling salvage parties enter the ship on search for money, gold, and a small amount of plutonium. 
plutonium are we going back in time <laughs> oh my god okay that's like ridiculous what is it rated it is rated a 2.3 oh, on Leatherbox. that's not a good sign okay anyway so before we get into the nitty-gritty here of course because i am me and i am an oscar nerd and we are getting pretty close to the oscars actually i, I feel the need to talk about the Oscars in regards to this movie. It was nominated for eight Oscars total and won two of them. It won a special award for the movie's visual effects, which for 1972, pretty good. I mean, they still hold up. Yeah. I think. There's nothing in here that takes you out of it. There's nothing like you sit there and go, wow, that's fucked up. Yeah, like that looks stupid. Everything looks really good still for it being 1972. And to, to Scott's chagrin, it also won the original song Oscar for a song called The Morning After. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night Now just to give you some context, this movie, I had forgotten, but this movie takes place on New Year's Eve. And the song The Morning After is being sung by the ship's singer, performer, at the New Year's Eve party. And it's like literally the most generic, boring (laughs) song. Like, I don't know what was nominated with this movie as far as songs are concerned, but it must have been Slim Pickens that year. (laughs) Uh, At least it's in the movie, but like... It is in the movie. Like, it's in the actual movie. A lot of the original song nominations, sometimes they're just in the end credits. (laughs) They're like, original song. But no, this this was actually in the movie for all of like a minute. Twice. They played it twice. But um, as far as nominations, it was nominated for Costumes cinematography art direction sound and editing and uh supporting actress for one of our wonderful female actors named shelly winters we will get to her she did an amazing job in this movie but uh one thing i did want to bring up is that it was nominated for score but it lost to a film called limelight which um (laughs) is a charlie chaplin film so let, let, let me explain. Mind you, this movie came out in 1972. Yeah, okay. So the movie Limelight was widely released in the year 1952. However, the film was not released in Los Angeles until 1972. And according to rules at the time, the film was ineligible for a nomination until it was released in Los Angeles. I guess that was a rule at the time oh, because Hollywood. Bullshit. So the movie was released in Los Angeles in 1972, so it was eligible for an Oscar, so they just shoehorned it in there, and I guess because Chaplin, they're like, give it to him. Oh, that's fucking bullshit. It it really is kind of bullshit. I read that, and I was very confused. I was like, really? Okay. I guess because Chaplin was kind of, you know, sidelined for Oscars while he was with us a lot of the, you know, I guess they kind of just gave it to him because Chaplin. So, without further ado, I would very much like to get into this movie. Let's do it. Let's get into this. Let's sing Auld Lang Syne. Let's Happy New Year to everybody. Let's go. I feel bad because I literally forgot this was a New Year's movie, which is stupid because literally there's a whole sequence where a bunch of people climb up a Christmas tree. And I'm like, it just slipped out of my brain, I guess. But it's fine. And by the way... I I did read the book in preparation for this episode. There are some significant differences between the book and the film, which we will talk about. But yeah, 
I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about this. This is a childhood favorite. <laughs> this disaster film where multiple people die. <laughs> Sounds about right. Let's go. So, we begin on the SS Poseidon. Uh. And this ginormous ship is traveling from New York to Athens on its last voyage because this old bird is on its last legs. Our first character that we meet is the captain of the ship. And by God, was I not thrilled to introduce to Scott the great Leslie Nielsen in one of his few dramatic roles very early in his career before he turned into the Leslie Nielsen we all know and love. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Leslie Nielsen, a.k.a. Captain Harrison, is here to captain the damn ship. And we established pretty early on that the owner of this ship has a, a representative on the boat basically kind of overseeing everything. And the, the gentleman goes to Leslie Nielsen. He's like, listen, we got we to gotta pick up the pace here. We got to go full steam ahead. We got to get to our destination. And Leslie Nielsen's like, oh, no, sir. We can't do that because this old bird, like I said, on its last legs, she ain't going to make it if we go full force. He you know, spouts out some like technical mumbo jumbo that I didn't understand. The point is, she's an old bitch and she can't go too fast. Basically, what he's saying is it's top heavy. So if it does tip at all, it will flip. Think of it like a woman with very large breasts. That uh, she bends that's, over I love how that's your comparison. Okay. Well. Okay. <laughs> After this, we immediately go into introducing our cast of characters because like I said, these kinds of films, they have quite a large ensemble of people. In the book, there's even more characters than are actually in the, in the movie. We're going to talk about that. But in the movie i felt like they did a really good job at not only like just introducing everybody but like establishing who everybody is a little bit of their backstory to kind of get everyone invested they did it pretty quickly and succinctly yeah they did a good job here like i feel like everyone you kind of know at least something about them I feel like a lot of times in this kind of scenario where they have to introduce a lot of people in the beginning, they kind of just like rush through it and give everyone like a quirk to like identify them. But in this, I feel like they at least took a little more time to establish everybody. Everyone had a quirk, but you do get at least enough of their backstory where you're like, okay, I can care about you. You're not just a quirk. Right. Exactly. So I'm going to just run through all our main characters. I'm going to introduce the, the character. I'm going to introduce the actor. And then Scott is going to give you his first impressions of these people and like basically where we're at with them. Okay. So first we have probably our least favorite character introduced. He's a young boy who really enjoys the mechanics of the ship and is always bugging the captain and the crew members about fun facts about the ship his name is robin and he is played by eric shea now scott what did we think of young robin young robin should have died <laughs> he well why you have to explain why dear you can't just say that he's he's literally like eight years old or something in the movie you have to explain why you wanted okay. to die <laughs> young robin is immediately like the most annoying character. I understand he's a kid actor. 
He's a kid actor. He's very G. Willikers. He's very G. Willikers. Yeah. He's very... He's the girl from Jurassic Park who can hack. It's just a bunch of, like, useless knowledge that there's no way this eight-year-old has. I think the, the comparison to the Jurassic Park girl is good because they basically made her have all that hacking knowledge for the purposes of the plot. Like, in reality, she would not... There's no reason why she would have all that knowledge. It's kind of a similar thing here where Robin has a ridiculously weird amount of knowledge about this one ship... Granted, I'm sure there are eight-year-old boys who like boats, but I don't think there's eight-year-old boys that would, like, have mechanical fucking numbers in his head about how thick the fucking hull of the ship is. Like, it's so weird. Or that the ship's engine has more power than all of Napoleon's, like vehicles at the time which the, no shit it's a giant ship right compared it's, to it's napoleon crazy. who has horseback horsepower I think- scott horsepower but anyway uh <laughs> i found it very funny because at one point when he was just running around being his annoying kid self gee willikers oh my goodness oh, oh. scott just goes oh god i can't wait for this kid to die <laughs> And I'm like, well, funny you should say that. In the movie, spoiler alert, this little kid lives. But in the book, little Robin drowns and they never find his body. And it's a very big source of sadness in the book. But Scott wouldn't have been sad, I don't think. I guess they just couldn't pull the trigger on that and kill the kid. 1972. I guess it's a little hard to kill a movie. It's not like like today where we fucking see uh, Michael Myers snap a kid's neck in a fucking truck. I mean, true. Uh, wait, was that on screen? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Oh, fuck. I don't even remember that. Anyway, so on top of Robin, we also have his older sister, Susan, who is played by Pamela Sue Martin. And uh, she's typical teenage girl character who quickly becomes obsessed with Gene Hackman's character, who is in his 40s. Ooh, baby. Ugh. Their dynamic is weird throughout the film because there's there's really one point in particular where shit gets real and like she's following him around because I feel safe with you. Da, da, da. He like grabs her face at one point and is like holding her very closely. And it's like, obviously, I don't think he like the character that Gene Hackman's playing is meaning anything untoward by it. But like if he knew that she was into him and wanted to bang him, I feel like he would be like, Ugh. <laughs> don't stand. Don't, don't stand, stand so close to me. <laughs> Also, another thing that's kind of funny is like they're, the two kids are on this boat alone and Scott immediately was like, where are their parents? They just left them on a ship going from New York to Greece alone while they're on vacation by themselves. And I was like, yeah, well, in the book, <laughs> the parents are actually there on the boat. But for whatever reason, I guess they had to cut some people because, again, there's a lot of characters in this fucking book Look. to the point where I had to write notes. It was like I was reading Game of Thrones. I had to literally write notes about all the characters they introduced. So literally, let's think about this. Just just as a parent, a boat ride across the Atlantic Ocean, even if it took a month, you're putting your 16-year-old in charge of your 8-year-old for one entire month. Well, I mean, that's not really the problem, I don't think. The problem is that you're away from your two children for a month just on vacation yeah, why, why in did, Greece. Why did they get- Like, why didn't we get to go on vacation in Greece? But I digress. 
After the two kids, we meet Mike and Linda Rogo, who are a hubby and a wifey, played by Ernest Borgnine and Stella Stevens, respectively. Now, Ernest Borgnine, uh, he's he's an Oscar-winning legend, and uh, he also voices the iconic character of Mermaid Man in SpongeBob. All I said was there's evil afoot. Evil! Will you please stop saying that? Evil! 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 Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. So you know that's clearly what he's most known for. Tell us, tell us about Mike and Linda Rogo, Scotty. So Mike is a hot-headed 1972 cop, and he married a prostitute that he arrested six times. Yeah, they never like flat out say that she's a prostitute. Like Scott thought that they were alluding to her being a stripper at first, but I'm like, no, babe. They said that she worked on the streets, not in the not in the clubs, girl. But also. There's a running kind of undercurrent that perhaps our Gene Hackman character, who we'll get to in a hot second, was a former customer of hers. Did you pick up on this? No, because I I did hear her say that, oh, this person was an ex-client of mine. I didn't pick up on it being Hackman. Well, we don't know. We never, like, get confirmation that it was. I think Ernest Borgnine is, like, suspicious that it was because they clearly, like, are making eyes at each other. In the book, they're clearly making, like, they're, like, flirty. So, but in this movie, it's more subtle. So, in this movie, Gene Hackman and Linda Rogo are kind of, like, making eyes at each other and, like, kind of, sort of, vaguely flirty. So, after they have that argument and Ernest Borgnine sees them interacting he's like hmm maybe it's that guy hmm interesting and like throughout the movie Ernest Borgnine and Gene Hackman are like butting heads the entire movie which is great but I'm not saying that the love triangle if you can call it that is the reason for it but it definitely doesn't help (laughs) no it doesn't help because his young hot wife who used to be a hooker is clearly a little flirty with the young sexy Gene Hackman yeah, I think it's more because as a former police officer, he's used to being in charge. Yeah, and definitely Gene Hackman. Once shit gets real, he kind of takes a leadership role. So after Mike and Linda, we meet three characters in this one scene. We meet James Martin, who is played by Red Buttons, who is another Oscar-winning legend. But he basically is established as like our bachelor of the movie. And he, he can't find himself a wife. He's just been a bachelor for too long. And he's he's a little lonely, you know. He just can't find the right woman. See, I, I know you say at the end he's supposed to get with one of the other characters. Mm-hmm. If you read into it, I think they're hinting that he's not straight. I think that, that there's an undertone of... He's a homosexual. I mean, it could very well be. I just always kind of took it as because that's what happened in the book. In the book, the character of James Martin ends up getting with another character at the end. But like in this movie, him and the other character don't like they don't kiss or anything. They're just very attached to each other and they help each other. Yeah, I mean, it could go either way. I don't think it's really clearly defined either way. No, it's probably not. It's just the way he plays it, though, because... He plays it very red buttonsy. Yeah, he plays it very... If you know what I mean. It's just the way he plays it. You're sitting there going, like, is he playing it that way? But, funnily enough, I have a fun fact in regards to this one character played by Red Buttons. This character was supposed to be played by somebody else. Oh. 
a Mr. Gene Wilder. Maybe you've heard of him. Oh, that would have been very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think it would have been great. But he had to turn down the role due to, quote unquote, scheduling. And I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, hmm, when did Willy Wonka come out? Right around this time. 1971. <laughs> Could it be? I don't know. Not confirmed. Just saying. Just, you know, putting two and two together, possibly making four. Him and Grandpa Joe again. Well, yes. Well, these. Okay. So the other two characters we meet in the scene are another married couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Rosen. And uh, we have Manny Rosen, played by Jack Albertson, who is Grandpa Joe in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. One of the greatest bastards of history. Okay. You're very hard on the Willy Wonka grandpa. I don't understand that Because he laid in bed for 20 years, let his grandson go to work. I think in the book he has an opium addiction. Really? Yeah, I think Charlie has a like actual drug addiction from working in the factories. Oh, roll doll. How could you? <laughs> and suddenly his grandson gets a golden ticket and he can magically hop out of the bed. It's the magic of chocolate, Scott. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, uh, Manny Rosen's wife is named Belle and she is played by Shelley Winters, who, as I mentioned previously, was nominated for an Oscar and also won a Golden Globe for her role in this film. It's funny because Shelley Winters, at first she's. it seems like she's the... The typical, almost like grandmother character. Right. Like the typical, oh, why haven't you found yourself a good woman yet? Like, the, Yeah. Like, Mind you, she was only 50 when this movie was filmed, but like she obviously had to play older. <laughs> but it's just funny because, yeah, she definitely fits into that like jolly old lady box, or at least they try to fit her there, but then her character goes another way. But yeah, as the movie went on, I really felt she really grew as a character. Absolutely. That's why I love her. And she, like, not gonna lie, she made me cry. I really, I've I've got teary-eyed at this movie, which is nuts. Because, you know, it's really just, it's, on paper, it's supposed to be just like a high-octane survival movie. But um, it it hit me in the feels. But um, they are essentially on this trip to visit their grandson for the first time. And that's really their main motivation. And they talk about it all the time. And it's very, very cute. And they're just so cute together. (laughs) Yes next character we meet is Nani, Nani Perry, played by Carol Lindley, and she is our singer who sings the bland fucking Oscar winning song, (laughs) and um, she is the biggest liability in this movie. She's the character that we were kind of referring to before that is just, you know, a pretty face who is really not meant to survive. Yeah, she's not really meant for a survival crisis situation. She is just constantly crying and screaming and having to be carried, essentially, by red buttons. <laughs> oh, my God. It's it's so ridiculous. You said they go like... It gets a little much after a while. Like, I mean, I've seen worse, for sure, in movies, but, I mean, my God. I'm like, red buttons, just, just leave her. Just leave her. Oh, but he can't. He needs to find the right woman <laughs> who can sing a bland-ass song to him in the nighttime serenade him with dulcet tones who might be sisters of george harrison oh yeah well she's she's in the band and when shit hits the fan that's her whole thing is like her brother gets killed and she doesn't want to leave him and scott kept calling him george harrison because he had long brown hair and a mustache so that makes you george harrison immediately he just looked like george harrison (laughs) i don't i don't get it but he looked like george harrison and then finally 
we meet our main character, our main squeeze, Gene Hackman, who played the character of Reverend Scott. And uh, funnily enough, we this is our fourth Gene Hackman film that we've done on the show. We have talked about him in Bonnie and Clyde, Superman, and The Replacements. So uh, he, he is very present on Shoot the Flick. Uh, he'll be back for more. I'm sure. But uh, he, he did great in this movie. He's kind of an asshole at times, but he's the leader. And sometimes when you're the leader, you got to be an asshole. <laughs> oh, yeah, because he's supposed to be like this new wave reverend. like he Kind of. He's definitely unconventional. Let's put it that way. But he, he sees it as new wave. But uh, there's another kind of clergyman on the ship that basically thinks he's just lost his way. Essentially, he gives a sermon to everyone on the boat during church services, and he's like, you you can pray to God, but really you should help yourself, and, and God can't help every individual. You can't, you can't pray for help in every situation. You gotta help yourself. And in the book, he's like that as well. It kind of comes off more that he's angry at God, which definitely comes out in this movie, but more towards the end. You know, he basically tells people if you have to survive on your own and work for yourself, which is basically what his thesis is throughout this whole disaster. He's like, I'm going to get everybody out of here. I'm going to do it. And then he realizes, like, you know, God has other plans. (laughs) I think at the end, there is kind of an acceptance of it. So I guess his arc is kind of complete at the end of the movie. I guess, like, accept your fate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there for sure. Trust me, it's fucking emotional as fuck, but we're gonna get there. <laughs> so now that we've introduced all of our main players, the passengers of this ship of dreams, some might call it, <laughs> they gather in the promenade room to celebrate New Year's Eve. And um, unfortunately, our captain, Leslie Nielsen, is called into the engine room because there's a tsunami coming. <laughs> yes, there is an earthquake off of Crete. Yeah, and uh, it, it manifests itself as a giant fucking wave coming straight at the boat. The captain and the crewmen try to avoid it, but uh, spoiler alert, they don't. And the boat capsizes and it goes completely upside down. And this whole scene where the ship capsizes is fucking great because it, you literally like see it flipping over both from the inside and the outside and people are falling from the floor onto the ceiling <laughs> of the boat. Many much are dead. There's only Many w- much are injured. There's only one thing I did laugh at, that it's clearly a model being hit by, like, a wave in a tub. Oh, for sure. But, like, it's fine. <laughs> it was just funny to me. It's just like, clearly, that's a model, sir. I mean, if you want to be, you know, a nitpicker about it, in Titanic, the tub is way bigger, you know? It's an actual, like, tank. But, like, essentially, in Titanic, the movie, not the actual event, <laughs> the fucking Titanic movie, it's a big, you know... The actual event took place big, in the bathtub. A big... <laughs> A big prop ship in a water tank that flips over. So really, this is just a scaled-down version of Titanic, if you want to be nitpicky about it. So the tsunami happens, and uh, of course, all our main characters that we really care about are still alive. We have this big group of survivors, and we have a, a workman on the boat who is like, everybody, we have to just stay here and wait for rescue. And Gene Hackman's like, I don't think that's going to work out. <laughs> Be 
because if you think about it logically, the boat is upside down. The top of the boat is under the water, which means the water is going to rise to the bottom of the boat, which is where we are right now. So we should like not be here. <laughs> well, even if you think about yeah, logically, you're in a glass room. The guy does go on to say like, oh, it, it, everything's water sealed. Yeah, but you're water sealed to a point. Right. Eventually, the pressure will get too much. It's And the, the glass <laughs> will break. Right. So eventually, yes, water will come in and everybody down here will drown. So basically, Gene Hackman and Red Buttons kind of take the lead on the idea of getting the hell out of here and trying to go up further to get out through the bottom of the boat, essentially. So they see a waiter up at the top of the boat by where the kitchen is. And they're like, oh, hey, Acres. His name is Acres. I'm guessing that's his last name. Probably. So he, he's injured there up by the kitchen. And he's like, hey, guys, um, I need help. And Martin and Reverend Scott are like, hey, let's go up there. And then we can try to get to the engine room to get help. And everyone else is like, no, 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 no. We convince our principal cast to go. Yes. Gene Hackman ends up convincing basically all of our main characters to go. Red Buttons convinces Nani because, you know, he wants some Nani Nani. Fucking Hackman leans the big Christmas tree that was in the room against the thing so they could get up to the next level. And they all climb up the thing. There were some great sequences in this part. There was a part where... Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rosen are talking. That's Shelly Winters and Grandpa from Lee Wonka. They're talking, and Shelly Winters is a, a little bit huskier. So she's like, listen, I ain't getting my fat ass up there. Here, take this necklace. If anything happens to me, just give that to our grandson. And he's like, what, are you going somewhere I'm not going? <laughs> and she's like, I can't get up there. And Gene Hackman comes over, and she says to him, is there anything up there that's different from down here? And Gene Hackman says, yeah life now remember that it's a good line but it's gonna come back later in a really 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 sad way <laughs> but uh, we also have the whole scene where red buttons goes to nani and convinces her to come with him she's like sitting there like stroking her brother her dead brother's hair it's like you're gonna wake up and <laughs> red buttons just goes up to her and he's like um your brother's dead <laughs> i'm pretty sure we saw her brother get crushed by a piano yeah i think that was him getting crushed by the piano and she just turns to him like shocked when he says that though and she's like did you like his music and i'm like oh my god this girl is gonna be a liability she is too out of it don't worry he'll wake up and he'll just have piano keys in his mouth it'll be fun it'll be like a cartoon (laughs) it'll be great but he he keeps trying to implore these people to come with him and they're like no we're staying with the ship guy but as soon as of course his last plea goes unanswered Water starts bursting in. Yeah. People start freaking out. They try to do the last minute climb to mm-hmm. join Hackman. Of oh course, the God. Christmas tree falls to Wee. the ground <laughs> and everybody's dead. It's great. Well, it's crazy because they don't all just die in an instant, obviously. They're all still screaming and crying and like, help me, help me. But he basically, Hackman's just standing there on this platform and he's like, I don't, I can't do anything. So he literally just walks out. And shuts the door behind him while they're all screaming. It's like, kind of like chilling. And then everyone else is just standing there like, oh, fuck, they're all going to die. Yeah, I-, I was trying to think in all honesty, maybe somebody could like wait to- for the water to actually rise high enough. Well, that's what I was thinking too, like kind of just float as long. But then the-, the pressure, I don't know if you could even do that. 
the way that the pressure was like the water was coming in it didn't really seem like we were in the ocean <laughs> you know what i mean it seemed no. like we were in like we were hosing, a log flume yeah, perhaps <laughs> we were shooting water in with a hose yes yeah, basically so after this point we have our main group mr and mrs rosen the Rogos, which is uh, Ernest Borgnine and his wife, the hooker. We have Susan and Robin, <laughs> the kids, the waiter, Acres, and we have Nani and Martin, and of course, Gene Hackman. Oh, I also, before they climbed up the Christmas tree, he had both Mrs. Rogo and the teen girl take off their skirts because he's like, you can't climb with a skirt. <laughs> it's too tight. Yeah, okay, whatever you say. <laughs> she can't climb in that, it's too tight. She's got nothing under it. Just panties. What else do I need? What do you mean, what else do you need? The rest of the movie, essentially, is this group of people trying to get through dangerous pipes and shafts in different parts of this boat in order to get up to the engine room and then potentially to safety. Yeah, that's the one thing about this movie. And I I know it's not really an avoidable thing, but it's kind of hard because you don't know the ship. Right, well, it's, that's why we have Robin there. That's why <laughs> we have the, Robin. And the waiter. It's kind of hard to tell where we're at. So it's like, how close are we? That's my one like nitpick of the movie, is it's hard to tell where we are on this ship. I get what you're saying, but... It's, it's a nitpick. It's yeah, not really... It's not. I, I would just argue that like it really doesn't matter like schematically where we are. It's, it's more about the journey, Scott. It's not about it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. <laughs> oh yes, the journey. So uh, through all these many, you know, climbs and crawls and this and that and the other thing, you know, we get some development with our characters along the way. Of course, a great way to develop any character is to put them into a life or death type situation. So we have Nani who is scared all the time and being tended to by red buttons. We have Robin still being generally annoying. At one point, he gets separated from the group, which I can imagine if you were a person in 1972 watching the movie and had already read the book, when Robin gets separated from the group, that's where he drowns in the book. He he goes off somewhere and they lose him and they never find him. So they just assume that he drowned. He's separated from them for a while in the movie, but then immediately Gene Hackman goes looking for him and he finds him and he's like, I had to take a leak. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Well, I can only imagine as a person watching the movie, like, oh God, okay, they didn't kill the kid. Well, that's the one thing, like, if you were gonna kill him, I think the better way to kill him here. I'm sure you fantasized about it, dear. Because the water's rushing. If you had him, like, kind of be, like, dragged away by the water and Hackman can't, like, get to him. Because it, it it is a little anticlimactic. Oh, we just couldn't find his body. He, he drowned. Oh. Well, that's the whole thing. Like in the book, he he's more of like a plot device than an actual oh, character. He, he, oh, he totally is a plot device. In the book and the movie, he's really more of just a plot device. Because in the book, the mom kind of loses it when she can't find him. So that it's more of a plot device in that regard. And then in this movie, he's really just a plot device to tell us random facts about the ship to kind of help guide us where we're going. Yeah. The other guy, too. We oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We lose so, Acres. Yes. Uh, we lose Acres pretty quickly because once he's served the purpose of getting everybody to go up uh, to the other level and, like, kind of helped us with a couple of ship things, because he did show, like, oh, the engine room's down this big hallway, so we can go this way. And then once he did that, he was kind of useless, so they just had him fall off a ladder and fall to his death. <laughs> and then they tell the reverend like oh you know he he fell we couldn't save him 
and he starts yelling at Rogo and it's like what are you yelling at him for he went he literally jumped off the ladder went into the water try to save him and then there was an explosion so he was gone and that's like you know you're lucky he didn't fucking die too he tried like what (laughs) and he's like I said I was gonna get everyone off this boat damn it and I'm like okay well (laughs) Well, it's not his fault (laughs) well and in the same breath 10 people is not everybody yeah that's also true I mean truth T but what, what are you gonna do they, they go through all this shit and, um, you know, Susan is, her only purpose is to be other screaming young girl with very visible legs and who's fawning over Gene Hackman the whole movie. Don't stand. Don't stand so close to me. Eventually, Gene Hackman does find the engine room and it's on the other side of this flooded corridor. So Gene Hackman's like, okay, I'm going to put this rope around my waist, dive down, go under and get to the engine room. And then you guys can just follow the rope and follow behind me. And if anything goes wrong, then tug on the rope. Okay, cool. Yay. And Belle Rosen, Shelly Winters, the queen, she's like, listen, can you actually hold your breath? Because he's like, oh, I should be there in like two minutes. And she's like, can you actually hold your breath for two minutes? Try it right now. Do it right now, bitch. Let me tell you something, mister, okay? I was like the women's swimming champion for like three years running in my prime. I was the queen of swimming. I could hold my breath for almost three minutes, motherfucker. I can do this. You motherfuckers have been making fun of me. Fucking the little kid called her a swordfish at one point. A 600-pound swordfish. What a fucking little dickhead. Ugh, anyway... Like, I can do this. Let me do this for everybody. And Gene Hackman's like, oh, no, Mrs. Rosen. Don't you worry. I wouldn't let you do that. I can swim. I can. I'm I'm the king. I'm the king of the Poseidon. I can swim. <laughs> I am Poseidon himself. I can swim across this measly corridor. It's fine. The only thing I will give him at least some credit for, because he had already kind of knew the layout. Mm-hmm. He kind of knew where he was going, where she wouldn't have But known. he told her, he, he said to everybody, look, it's just down this way, go down this way, up, da, 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 da. But you're going underwater with no but life. But she's the swimming queen. Because what happens is, Gene Hackman goes under the water, right? And his strong ass self gets knocked out by a fucking plank or something. He's under the fucking water, struggling and wriggling around. And everybody up on the surface is like, what's going on? Oh, no, whatever will we do? And Belle Rosen just looks at her husband, Manny, and she's like, didn't say a word. And Manny's like, you go, baby, be careful. (laughs) And she dives down there like a fucking aquatic princess and just dives under there. And she even says to fucking Hackman when they come up for air finally they get to the engine room she saves his fucking life okay this like however old she's supposed to be in this movie she's got spray painted gray ass hair (laughs) she's supposed to be old as shit she dives down there saves this grown ass man's life and they go to the engine room and she comes up for air and she says you see Gene Hackman when I am underwater I am a very skinny lady (laughs) and then (laughs) immediately has a heart attack because old lady who to be fair has undertaken a great deal of physical strain not just from the swim but like everything up to that point literally it happened she gets up and she goes "Uh, uh," and then falls back in the water and scott's like really and i'm like bro she's old as shit like leave her be it just it's so weird 
I get it. Like, oh yeah, there's a lot of stress, but so it felt like, oh, we had this whole big moment with her. Like, yeah, and it was just like, fuck. Well, that's really like the devastating part of it because up to this point, she's had a few moments like just her and her husband like talking and talking about their grandson and like, listen, if anything happens to me, just you know, go go see our grandson. Da da da. And the husband, of course, is trying to stay positive and everything. But it's almost like she knew just because like of her age and her physical health, like that she probably wasn't going to make it. The death scene itself, it's kind of like soap opera-y where like she's talking through it to Gene Hackman and she goes like several times. But like you kind of forgive that because her character is so fucking great and she does such a great job with it. As she lays there dying, she says to Gene Hackman, here, take this pendant give it to Manny to give to our grandson. It's the Hebrew symbol for life, which goes back to what Hackman said to her in the beginning of the movie before they went up there. He's like, life, life is up there. And she's like, just give this to Manny to give to our grandson. He's still got a reason to live. And then she dies and it's really sad. I cried. (laughs) She finally proved herself that she's like useful. And mind you, fucking Nani is back there shaking like a leaf being like, I can't swim. Like, bitch. She's like, can we just stay up here, Red Buttons? We could get rescued. And it's like, no, bitch. The water has been chasing them this whole fucking time. Every time they get to a different level, the water is like slowly rising and they're like basically being jawsed by the water itself. Yeah. So you can't you can't just stay here. Meanwhile, geriatric Bell Rosen just saved everybody's asses. Oh, yeah. Though there is one thing before we move on and talk about everybody else real quick. I did want to bring it up because cause it was funny to me. So when Gene Hackman first goes down into the water, he makes a turn, and I guess he didn't realize how close the metal railing was because he hits his head on the railing, and you clearly see him react to, ah! <laughs> they kept it in, and I laughed so hard. And then... <laughs> Ernest Borgnine goes through, and he's like, you didn't pull on the rope, and he's like, oh... Yeah, he looks oh. over and he starts talking to Mrs. Rosen like, oh, th- thank God for you, Mrs. Rosen. You saved the day. And Hackman's like, dude, she's gone. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God. And he's like, what do I tell Manny? And he's like, Hackman's like, you don't tell him anything. And it's like, it's okay. <laughs> and then it was so sad. He goes back, Borgnine, to get everybody. And Manny, literally the first thing he says, How, where is she okay? How's my wife? And he's like, she got through. <laughs> she got through. She she saved us all. And um, he's like, yeah, but something went wrong, didn't it? And he, he he couldn't answer. I mean, God, I mean, I don't blame him. It's horrible. And then immediately Manny jumps in the water. He follows the rope and they all start going one by one. But literally, as soon as Manny jumps in the water and goes off, fucking dumbass Nani walks in. She's like, Something did go wrong, didn't it? I'm like, are you fucking stupid? Like, Read the room. Keep keep up, little girl. Like, seriously. I, oh, God. I There's hate. gotta be a morning after. Oh, my God. Fucking kill me. <laughs> so annoying. Anyway, everybody gets to the engine room. Manny sees his lovely wife who has passed away. And it's just so sad because he's just holding her and... Oh, man. He doesn't want to leave her. He says, my place is here with my wife. And Hackman gives him the pendant. And he's like, she wanted you to, to live. You know, you can't you can't stay here. She wants you to go see your grandson, goddammit. Yeah, you belong with the living, he says. And it's really sad. And Life finds a way. Oh, jeez. Anyway, 
<laughs> Thank you for ruining this beautiful emotional moment. <laughs> After that whole emotional moment, Gene Hackman finds an open propeller shaft across this long, scary ass catwalk. And there's this like wheel up in the rafters there to like open it up. And as soon as I saw that wheel, if you've seen this movie, you know what it means. I knew what it meant. And I was like, oh, my God, because I knew like literally the most memorable part of the movie for me was about to happen. And I wasn't mentally or emotionally prepared. But here we go. So everyone's walking across this big, scary catwalk. Right. And the John Williams score at this point in particular was like super intense. It was very like, we're getting this done. We're very triumphant, also almost in a way. But also, there was an undercurrent of like, something's going to happen. <laughs> it's just like, it was very, like most, if not all, John Williams scores. There's a, it's very much its own character in a way. Yeah. As they're walking across the big scary catwalk, Mike Rogo is walking right in front of his wife, Linda. She's holding on to him. And then there's a big explosion again. And Linda goes, wah, and falls off the catwalk to her death because there is like a big fiery inferno underneath them because there's a bunch of oil that's on fire (laughs) underneath the catwalk. This is the most unceremonious kind of like. Yeah, it just happened out of nowhere. I was like waiting for your reaction. You were like, oh, fuck. It almost felt like, oh, really it kind of stinks in a way because after that huge emotional moment with mrs rosen dying and manny rosen saying goodbye to her and everything linda dies pretty much right after that and ernest borgnine gets this like really devastating little speech and he's blaming gene hackman for everything and all this stuff but like it doesn't have i feel like the punch that it should you took from me the only thing i ever loved in the whole world my Linda, you killed her. It's sandwiched in between, like probably the two most important deaths of the movie. Right, exactly. So it's just like it seems unceremonious. Mister Rogo has to get over it really quickly to kind of like right to finish get, the movie. Right, and also like the difference between the Rosens and the Rogos, which by the way, their names are too similar. You should have maybe you know made them a little different to distinguish them better but okay Ernest Borgnine and his wife they have all their real like meaningful scenes in the beginning of the movie before everything goes crazy while every all the craziness is happening they don't have any scenes together that are like developing their relationship at all really no they kind of seem like they're at each other's throats yeah if anything they're just kind of yelling at each other all the time and like I get it, like, you know, old married couples, you know, they bicker all the time, but, like, the Rosens, Shelley Winter and Grandpa from Willy Wonka, they have, like, a couple of scenes in the midst of the chaos that, like, kind of center them and make you, as the audience, see how wholesome and beautiful they are, which makes it devastating when she dies. Like, if you took her death out, yeah, you lose the Ernest Bornine speech here, which is a good speech. It is a good speech. But it's not really earned i feel like because yeah like it's a good speech but it's not an earned speech again you have mrs rosen's death about three or four minutes before this which is a huge death and then right after this we're gonna go right into the biggest death in the movie there was another explosion right after this that, that caused a pipe to burst 
right next to the big wheel that opens the shaft, the propeller shaft that's supposed to be like their way out. So the pipe bursts and then a bunch of steam is like right over the, the wheel so they can't get to it. So Gene Hackman decides he's going to start fucking yelling at God and talking about what an asshole he is. He literally leaps out across this pool of flaming oil and he grabs onto the wheel of the valve and starts turning it to open it up. And his speech is like fucking insane. I love his speech. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. It's a great speech. How many more lives? That wasn't enough. Acres wasn't. Now this girl. You want another life? Then take me. He turns it with his like the force of like his body which by the way the amount of fucking arm strength you would need to do this is insane if you ever watch american ninja warrior they have a stunt like this <laughs> where like you have to jump and use like your whole body weight yeah, to I've spin and, like crazy so gene hackman spins the little wheel he manages to do it and he's screaming and just so fucking pissed off at god and then he looks at everybody and he says, Rogo, make sure you get them through. And then he's just hanging there and everyone's watching him and he falls to his death. He sacrifices himself for everybody to get out. So you have Hackman's death here. It, it, I guess this is also why Linda's death doesn't seem as big because you have two sacrifice deaths. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, too, this happens in the book, right? Linda does die in the book. I think she actually I might be wrong. I think Linda actually gets impaled in the book. But when Hackman dies in the movie, uh, Susan proceeds to start screaming histrionics and like reaching out and trying to like jump down to him. Red Buttons actually has to slap her across the face to like snap her out of it. 1970s, baby. We love that for them. But in the book, it's crazy because that does happen in, in the book too. But it's not Susan that is like madly in love with the reverend and jumping, you know, after him and stuff. Actually, there is a whole ass other character, <laughs> this like spinster lady character named Mary that has had a crush on Scott. And then when he died, she literally started like screaming and crying histrionics and saying like that they were going to be married. And everyone else is looking at her like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I remember that much from the book. And it's like, oh, boy. But yeah, I think it's good that they got rid of some characters from the book and like took characteristics from other people just kind of condensed everything yeah because it would have been way too much there's so many freaking characters in the book it's let's have crazy. the 16 year old be in love with the 40 year old i mean it's not it's a tale as old as time scott tale as old as time a song, song as old as rhyme damn it <laughs> you trying to out beauty and the beast me you fool <laughs> so after Re the reverend's death brogo he does get up off his ass and he gets everybody out to the propeller shaft and eventually rescuers come and they cut through the bottom of the boat and they save them and they fly off in a helicopter. But right before Rogo leaves, he looks back into like the fiery inferno that they left behind, knowing that his wife is back there. And it, it is really kind of sad. I thought that was like a nice little detail that they put in well, to yeah, like acknowledge that. And while all this is going on, Michael Caine is trying to steal plutonium and gold. That's so bizarre. 
why wouldn't you just make you have these characters just make another move make it so like oh they they built another poseidon it's the new poseidon and it's, it's another disaster like it's fine if you want put fucking ernest borgnine on the ship again frankie Fuck it. frankie it's a midquel it's a midquel oh no <laughs> anyway that was the poseidon adventure Yes, that was it. That was the Poseidon adventure. So I was very pleased to have watched this again. I had more feels than I was expecting. I gave it a three and a half out of five stars. I am right there with you at a three and a half out of five. It's really a good time. If you have HBO Max, it is currently on HBO Max. Well, after the description of the sequel, I at least want to watch the sequel. I really just want to see like why they did that. Also, why would they do that? Also... Because Kurt Russell's in the remake, I'm willing to give the remake a chance. Yeah. I would say that the movie is definitely better than the book, I think. Which is kind of rare in you, you in most cases. But I had a lot more fun with the movie than the book. Yes, it was fun. It's a fun movie. Maybe, maybe someday I'll show you Towering Inferno as well. That was a fun one. Yeah, I'm always down. So... Next week, it is the week of Valentine's Day. No! You're going to say that with your wife sitting right next to you, really? Oh, well, more no, because I know what's coming. Who do you know that is more romantic than the great Nicholas Sparks? No! Okay, we get it, Scott. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people. But Nicholas Sparks is known for one thing. And that is writing sappy romance books. And also, Nicholas Sparks' movies are known for one thing, being adaptations of sappy, sappy romance books and being sappy, sappy movies. So we are going to watch one of those Nicholas Sparks movies. I'm not going to tell you which one. It's not The Notebook. I've seen The Notebook. Oh, and he loved it so much. Yeah, so much. I love The Notebook. That's th- th- that. That's where we are. But which Nicholas Sparks movie will it be? find out next week (laughs) but until then this has been shoot the flick i'm frankie sparks and i'm not the reverend scott but scott eisenberg (laughs) uh make sure you check out our instagram and twitter at shoot the flick and check out our weekly episodes every single wednesday on itunes spotify google podcast and iHeartRadio. and make sure you come back next week for our lovey dovey kissy wishy movie adventure hallelujah why reverend scott oh god i'm on a